This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you join us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 24. The disciples of Jesus had a lot of questions at this point in the narrative. They grew concerned, even nervous, about what was coming next. It wasn't the kingdom they imagined. What Jesus told them was just enough. Just enough detail to assure them that there was a plan set out by God and that they had nothing to fear. God's sovereign plans would prevail. We're faced with similar challenges, and we too are asked to trust that God's plans are good and that they will prevail in the end. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So if you have your Bibles with you, follow along with me. Verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And at the end of the age, and Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Okay, that's enough for us to spend some time studying. We need to go slow here and understand why Jesus wants to give us, you and me, as we're reading this, hope for today and assurance for tomorrow. So let's break up this initial dialogue here between Jesus and the disciples into its natural parts so that we can understand the heart of Christ and we can understand the hearts of the disciples because I suspect that you and I share the same anxieties and the same need for assurance that they needed here. So the first part of this in verse 1, we're going to call it the symbolic departure. And I call it symbolic hesitantly because this was a literal departure. Jesus is literally walking away from the temple. But there are at least two reasons why Jesus went away from the temple. The Bible says here that he was going away from the temple. First, you will remember in verse 32 that he gave permission to the scribes and the Pharisees to crucify him. When he says, go ahead, fill up the cup of your guilt because you are murderous. So go ahead. This was a permission that he was given them to crucify him. But they had to plan for the, the whole thing. They had to plan for his capture and trial. And some Old Testament prophecies still needed to be fulfilled. For example, the betrayal of Judas. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus walked out of the temple because that had to take place outside of the temple. But secondly, I want you to observe here with me that his physical departure from the temple illustrates what he just said. It illustrates a biblical truth, namely the desolation of the house that he prophesied in verse 38. He says, this house is going to be left to you desolate in verse 38. You remember the reason why? He is lamenting Jerusalem. He's lamenting the fact that Jerusalem did not receive the Messiah. Again, this is not a personal ego thing, but Jesus is lamenting the fact that he wanted to gather the people of of Israel together. And he will do that because he says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate until a time, until a time when I will restore all things. 
But when he says, I'm going to leave the house desolate, he is illustrating that by literally walking away from the temple. God himself incarnate, leaving the house as if to say, you don't want me here. Okay, I'm going to go. You have rejected me. Therefore, your house is being left to you desolate. I'm going to go. Having God depart the place is something that we are very familiar with. Our culture has done that. Our culture has told God, we don't want you here. We don't want you to be a part of our lives. We don't want you to tell us what to do. We want to be governed the way we want to be governed. So therefore, we don't want your values. We don't want your word to be taught. We're going to limit God to a private life type of a thing. That's what we hear today. That's the motto of our day. Don't talk about him. Don't promote his views. Don't, uh, don't, don't apply his views on human flourishing of government and on morality. We're not interested in that. That's our culture, not America only, but the West in general and, and pretty much every other country. Now, because the Jews rejected the one who is greater than the temple, remember, Jesus identified himself as the one greater than the temple in Matthew 12, verse 6, because remember, the temple represented God's presence. Jesus is the God-man. He is 100% God, 100% human, the very incarnate God. So he is greater than the temple. Because the Jews rejected the one that is greater than the temple, and I'm referring to the Jews of the first century, God, therefore, would crumble their faulty foundation. God decided, okay, since you have rejected me, I love you so much that I'm going to have to crumble that foundation so that you can rebuild on the right foundation. And there's the hope of restoration here. Because remember, he promises, one day you will finally say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In church, destroying foundations is something that God does often. And I thank God that he does that. Because so often we, and I'm transferring things to the spiritual realm now, we build on wrong foundations in our lives. We, we build our lives, our walks with God, our fellowship with Him, and with one another on a wrong foundation. And because of that, God has to come in and destroy those foundations and say, you got it all wrong. So God destroys metaphorical structures in our lives built on the wrong foundation. For example, sometimes all of us, we are prone to doing that. We elevate human wisdom above God's Word. We say we love God's word, we, we proclaim that, we sing about it, but when it's time to operate by biblical principles, what do we do? We say, no, God, I think I have a better idea on how to do relationships. God, I think I have a better idea on how to do this forgiving thing or this restoration thing. No, that is a wrong foundation. God, therefore, has to crumble things. So we should welcome that process. Even though we grieve, even though we think it sets us back, in our walk with him, but no, it's a good thing. Let the master builder demolish structures in our lives that we built and that shouldn't be there. They're in the wrong foundation. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus walked out of the temple is he needed to illustrate that departure. He needed to illustrate that desolation. God is walking away from your midst because you have chosen to promote a system that is based on human knowledge, human wisdom. Therefore, Jesus says, I'm leaving the place. And by the way, that place is going to be destroyed. In fact, that's what leads us to the second part of this dialogue here. We talked about a symbolic departure. Now in verse 2, we have a significant prediction. Jesus makes a prophecy here. He tells them what's going to happen in the future. Now, I need to give you some background information here, historical background information for us to understand 
what prompted the concern of the disciples here. In fact, when you read a harmonized version of this account here with Luke and Mark, too, you have a better idea of the anxiety in our hearts. But in order for us to have a better grasp of that, I need to give you some background information. I don't mean this to be a seminary class, but I just want to take you to a few verses in the Old Testament. Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, according to God's instruction to David. David wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, you're a man of bloodshed. Your son's going to build the temple because he's a man of peace. By the way, that, that's why his name was Solomon, from the word Salem, shalom, peace. So here's what God told David. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, that's the promise of the never-ending kingdom here. And then God is telling David, your son is going to build the temple. Now, the book of 1 Kings, chapters 6 through 8, describes the construction project. But during that time, God warned Solomon. In 1 Kings 9, verses 6 through 8, he warned Solomon and said, Listen, if the people abandon me, this is all going to fail. This is what he says. If you and your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. And that church is exactly what happened. If we keep reading to Second Kings chapter 24, for example, you may have heard of a man named Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The Bible tells us that he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord just as the Lord had said. So worst case scenario happened here. But God allowed the rebuilding of that temple. There's an entire book of the Bible that describes that. It's the book of Ezra. And we read in Haggai, for example, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the exact details of how God allowed them to rebuild the temple. However, that rebuilt temple was never restored to its former glory until Herod the Great began a refurbishing project in 20 B.C., and that's the building that Jesus walked away from. That's the one that Jesus has promised that that, that temple is going to be destroyed. Now, on that day in Matthew 24, verse 1, when they were having this conversation here, two days before his crucifixion, according to Luke, the disciples observed to Jesus that this Herodian temple was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. That's in Luke 21, verse 5. And Jesus says, oh yeah, it's all going to be destroyed. Now, it was hard for them to picture the destruction of such a national-slash-religious symbol. Now, think about, as Americans, how you would feel if someone predicts the destruction of the Statue of Liberty, which is a symbol of our one of our most valued principles, freedom. That's sort of like that, how they felt. Now, they were fascinated with this religious building, and that's something we share with the disciples. We love grandiosity. Oh, boy. And we have, again, this is a... Wrong thing to do, but we associate grandiosity with spiritual vitality. We immediately associate beautiful buildings 
you know, great crowds and all of that with spiritual vitality and health. Like the disciples, for example, we look at ministries, especially here in the West. We look at ministries that produce our favorite fads in Christianity. By the way, every 10 years or so, there's a new fad that sweeps through Christianity. It lasts about two years or so. They're all gone. The Bible stands. So we look at those ministries and say, Jesus, look at that. Look at the magnificence of that thing. They're so cool. They're so innovative. They're so hip. you got to be impressive with all the theatrics, with the fog machine or the number of the social media followers. Jesus, they must be doing something right. You must be impressed with that thing. And we grieve when God destroys those things. We should not be shocked to learn that he does not need human cleverness in order to accomplish his purposes. The disciples needed to learn that lesson. You and I need to learn that lesson. So when God destroys a foundation that is so dear to us, be it music, be it the carpet of the church, be it some philosophy, whatever the case is, we should welcome that and say, Lord, I, how about this? I'm going to let you build your, your body. I'm going to let you build your church that you promised to build. I'm just going to be here and be used of you in whatever you want me to do. Now, here's how one of the disciples expressed this grief. He says, according to Mark 13, verse 1, he says, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Again, according to Luke, the disciples said, oh, this building is all adorned. And according to Mark, they said, Jesus, look again. Are you sure this is the building? Look at the building. He says, behold, that this is a wonderful structure, wonderful stones, wonderful buildings. As if to say, please tell me that you don't mean that literally. Jesus, please tell me you don't mean a literal destruction. You're speaking metaphorically. You're speaking proverbially. This is another parable, I hope. But Jesus said, no. In fact, let me give you some more details. He said, do you not see all of these things? I say to you that not one stone will be left upon another. This is a literal destruction. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. And we know exactly when that happened. This all took place in 70 AD. There was a destruction of that temple. But let me talk to you about a special location here. We covered a significant prediction now and a special location. Why is it so important that Jesus is in the Mount of Olives, giving all of these prophecies and telling them what's going to happen here? The Mount of Olives bears prophetic significance according to Zechariah 14 verse 4. Listen to this passage. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So Jesus just left the building, and he's predicting what's going to happen to the temple, and he sits on the Mount of Olives, the place where he will come back in his second coming, to the very place where he says, you will recognize me and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, listen to what's going to happen in that occasion. Zechariah 14, verse 4, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. So this is a prophecy about the second coming of Christ. We know the exact location where Jesus will touch down. And that's in the Mount of Olives, the Bible says. And Jesus will come back and establish the kingdom finally which is a theocracy, a benevolent theocracy. We're going to be ruled by Christ. Just to confirm that, let me take it to the book of Revelation. 
John the Revelator must have remembered the Olivet Discourse when he heard from the risen Lord. More details about the second coming. He heard uh, the following words according to Revelation 16, verses 17 through 19. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man come to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And I wonder if that is the earthquake that's going to split the Mount of Olives in two that we just heard here from Zechariah. So here in Matthew 24, we have Jesus sitting down at the very place where he will once stand as a conquering king. Don't miss the significance of that. Nothing in the Bible is there by coincidence. There is a divine purpose in this scene here where Matthew is specific in saying Jesus sat down. The reason, church, he's sitting down is because still there's time for repentance. Now, when, when Matthew writes these words here and Jesus is telling the disciples, this is what's going to happen. He, the, there's no earthquakes there now. There's no splitting of mountains. He's communicating calmness and, and hope. There's still time to repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that because there's a specific purpose, the different purposes with the two comings of Christ. Jesus came for the first time for one purpose. He will come a second time for a different purpose. Now, he hinted at the difference of purposes one time when he read from the book of Isaiah in a synagogue. Let me read that passage to you. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, he picked up the book and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That is in Luke 4, verses 18 through 19. And he stopped reading that passage and he told them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were, they were curious because he didn't read the whole passage in Isaiah. He particularly left out the part in verse 2 of Isaiah 61 that says, And the day of vengeance of our God. And the reason he did that, church, is because in his first coming, he did not come to do vengeance. He came to do saving. He came to redeem people. Now, he's coming a second time to do the vengeance of God. And that is when he stands upon the Mount of Olives. And then judgment comes. So, Again, let's not miss the significance of this. Matthew places Jesus Christ sitting down on a Mount of Olives in preparation to be killed as a ransom for many. Now, in his return, he will stand in that same place in preparation to kill and to inflict divine vengeance. Okay, So every time we talk about Christ, we cannot separate those two. We need to give the full picture to people. We say Jesus loves you. He came to save you. He came to redeem sinners. He wants you to have eternal life. Yes, that's all true. But if you do not come to faith in Jesus Christ, my friend, there's a day of vengeance coming. You do not want to be a part of that. But let me talk to you about the fourth feature of this conversation here. A stressed group. Again, the disciples here. Their expectation of the end times did not include the destruction of anything, much less the revered symbol of Judaism. They thought that Jesus would usher in the kingdom immediately. Luke tells us that in Luke 19, verse 11. He says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. 
So in their minds, there's no cross or anything like that. They, they wanted the kingdom to appear immediately. And also, remember in Matthew 18, they were fighting to see who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So they were looking forward to having their VIP seats in the kingdom. So obviously, they wanted more details about this desolation and the destruction here that Jesus is prophesying. So they asked very specific questions to Jesus. In verse 3, here in the second half of the verse, they said, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign. So when and what? They're asking Jesus, when will these things happen? Because we thought that the kingdom was going to happen now. So what's the timeline here, Jesus? How long are we going to have to wait? And what will be the sign of your coming? Now, like them, we long for the assurance from God that his people will prevail at the end. And the present can be so distressing for us at times, especially when we hear about mass shootings and little kids being shot to death. And we say, Lord, when? When are you going to come, Lord? I can't wait for you to come and establish your peace because the world now is in bad shape. But he has a divine purpose. We've already discussed the fact that he answered the first question, when will these things happen? But the answer to the second question here, what would be the sign of your uh, coming and uh, the sign of the end of the age? So it's a twofold second part of the question here. And Jesus spends the entire chapter, both chapter 24 and 25, answering those questions, giving them the details, which leads us to the fifth point here and last one of our message today. We're going to call this one a soothing answer. Because before he starts giving them details, he says, see to it that no one misleads you. And and that's how he introduces this sermon on on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. Now, those are such reassuring words because these guys were distressed And down in verse 6, he says, see to it that you are not frightened. So you see what Jesus is doing here. He is comforting the disciples. See to it that no one misleads you. Don't be misled and don't be frightened because I got this. I got this under control. Especially because they just heard that their entire Jewish system is going to crumble. The temptation to discredit Jesus and to abandon their posts is real. In fact, Peter succumbed to that temptation not too many days from there. In church, we face the same temptation when we encounter distress. In fact, we are very vulnerable to false teachers when we are going through a period of distress, when we are going through a period of anxiety. That is when false teachers usually jump in and, 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 and pounce. That is why Jesus says, don't let anyone mislead you. Trust my words. So if anyone comes and, and, and comes up with a new system and with a timeline of the return of Christ, turn off the YouTube machine and, and just, just go read the Bible. Because he says, don't let anyone mislead you. Don't be frightened. False prophets prey on Christians whenever we experience stress and anxiety. Because we tend to wonder, what well, is God taking a break from this thing here? Because uh, I, don't, I don't know where God is now. Did he take a break from the universe, from controlling the universe? No, church, he never does that. It's time for us to double up on our vigilance so that no one misleads you. If you're ever considering a time to get to know the Word of God, this is the time to read more of the Bible and less romantic comedies. Because uh, how are you not going to be misled? Well, if you know the truth, just read the truth. If you're considering, well, when is time to get involved in church? The time is now where you can be under the teaching of the Word of God so that no one will mislead you. Because if you keep watching CNN or Fox, conservative or or liberal media, doesn't matter. Your heart is going to be more anxious, not less anxious. 
So you go to the Word of God so that you are not frightened. Why? Because it's got this under control. We don't need to know the details of every day. We need to live day by day. All I need to know is that He is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. Whatever it is that He's doing is good by nature, even if it involves loss and temporary pain for us. So let's not be misled. Let's not be frightened by the present. That is the purpose of the Olivet Discourse here, that Jesus is calming the hearts and giving hope to the disciples. For now, we grieve, yes, because we experience loss here, but not as those who have no hope. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Yes, our heart breaks because of sin, because the name of Christ is mocked and dishonored. But Jesus says, don't let anyone mislead you and don't be frightened. And we're going to obey him. The more we draw near to him, the less frightened we will be and less prone to false teaching we will be. So I hope that you will join me in doubling up and understanding what the Bible says. And let's double up our biblical literacy, something that's not very popular these days. Father, thank you for the truth of your words. Lord, thank you for the comfort we get from the Word of God in knowing that Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago already notified the disciples that he had things completely under his control, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord. But Father, we live in the present. We, we can't live in the past, and we don't live in the future. That's impossible. We live in the present, Lord. And, and in the present, what you ask us to do is to trust you and to not be misled and to not be frightened, Father. So I pray Lord, that you will equip us to do that, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord, because our hope has been renewed, Lord. So I pray that we will all be reminded of that today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost through the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.